Our scripture reading this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14, and then Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. And then from Matthew, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. We continue this morning in a series uh, that we're going to be doing throughout the summer, the 10 weeks that, at least that we're together in one service uh, talking about some of the strategic applications of our theology that shape our ministry as a church uh, in our unique cultural setting and moment. So our core commitments, our, our core values, or what we would call our, our, um, our theological vision. Now, we're going to use these talks uh, in the future in membership settings and so forth, so we are taping these things, and that's good. But let me, this is kind of the midsummer-friendly pastoral reminder uh, one of these talks didn't get didn't get taped the other day, uh, or, you know, a couple weeks ago, and everybody was, ah, what are we going to do? And actually, as I sat with it more and more, I thought, you know what, I think that was a good thing. We may do that more often, uh, because I don't want how well Joe does with keeping things on the app and all that kind of uh, kind of things for your confidence that uh, the sermon will be there for to become an excuse for you to not be here, right? So the Bible doesn't say. If you miss church, make sure you, you catch the app. The scripture says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Uh, and so we should be diligent with that. Uh, it, particularly, 
I'm glad so many are here. And I'm glad that the numbers are, are so big because um, these are important things for us to talk about. These are the things that really fire our engines as a church. And so it's, you know, it's helpful, and, and so I'm glad you're here. So for the first few weeks, we talked about the gospel and how, how we are committed to, to emphasizing the gospel in every sphere of ministry in the church because it's what both Christians and non-Christians need the most. But not only emphasizing, we said, we're committed to staying on the gospel and then for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about some of the outcomes of gospel ministry, friendship and humility and these sorts of things. Now, this morning, we're going to kind of shift gears. We're going to turn our attention for the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about what we feel like is our call to the city, uh, to the city that we've been called to and put in by God. Now, in months before we planted Redeemer, so this is 2008, Jonathan and I uh, were meeting together to plan and pray, and one day we, we went uh, for a walk around the downtown area of Winter Haven. We met at the public library for a time, and we would have lunch down there, and then we walked around. We got caught one day peeking in the window of the Ritz Theater uh, because it had always been a dream of mine to, to hold a worship service there. We thought, you know, maybe even that could be a place that we could meet for worship. I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark as a, as a kid in the Ritz. Right? Think about that. I'm pretty sure with rats kind of climbing down the banisters and that sort of thing. But I, it was a very, very vivid memory of mine. That's the first, that's the first of those movies, by the way, just in case. Uh, by God's grace, we have now had two Christmas Eve services there. So isn't that a neat thing? That for years uh, I, had, I dreamed of that and we were able to do that. So, so Jonathan and I were poking around. Uh, and at the time... The offices for Main Street Winter Haven were there in the lobby, and so the lady who was the executive director, she saw us kind of like, you know, gawking in her window at her desk. She came outside. She said, can I help you? And so we told her, you know, we're planting a new church here in Winter Haven, and we'd like to meet in the downtown area. And she kind of like put her hand up and kind of stopped us in mid-sentence as we were talking about these things. And she said, you know, I, I don't like that idea at all. We were kind of taken aback. What, what, what do you mean? She, and so she said... She said, um, she quickly began to say, oh, I'm all for you, planning a church. And then she began to tell us all of the great locations that we might plant a church that were as far away from the downtown area as she could think to put us. It was really striking. Uh, and it was pretty obvious that she was against the idea of us being downtown. And so we, we began to ask her, you know, well, well tell us more about that. Uh, why? You know, why, why is it that you would be so opposed and you think the, the business leaders and so forth down here would be so opposed to be us, us being down here? And she began to explain why. And as she began to explain why, we began to realize that the people who really loved Winter Haven and who wanted to see it grow and flourish commercially, economically, civically, and so forth, and this is Christians and non-Christians I'm talking about. These people, they saw the churches, and particularly churches in downtown area, as hindrances and not a help to the goals that they had for the city. It was really, really shocking. They had come to view the churches as a foe and not a friend to all the economic development and so forth that they were really hoping would, would see. And she told one story that's always stuck with me. Now I have to warn you. It, <laughs> it's a secondhand, it may be urban legend, okay? This could be the stuff of urban legend, but the point remains. The point remains. This is the story she told us. She said, there's a small restaurant uh, which had been operating without a liquor license down in, in the downtown area because there's a code on the books in the city that prevents alcohol from being sold within 500 feet of a church. And there was a church nearby. Well, this church began 
a renovation project, and the plans called for the front doors of the church to kind of be moved around the corner and so forth, which on the books somehow officially put the church uh, outside of the 500-foot ordinance. So you can imagine the glee of the restaurant owner who now can apply for his liquor license, which would be profitable for his business. Well, when this church heard that their plans were going to allow this to happen to this, to this uh, restaurant, they went back to the architect, spent thousands of dollars to figure out how to rearrange their plans to get the doors back within the 500 feet to keep that little restaurant from being able to sell alcohol. You know, again, urban legend, maybe. We're not here to name names or anything like that. But I want you to see the lessons there, isn't it? The people with a heart for the city saw the churches, because of things like that, as opposed on moral grounds to the economic expansion of the city, and particularly the downtown area. I want to say that's a problem. That's a problem. So when we started Redeemer, we sent invitations to all of our friends. And on the invitation, if those of you who are in the core group, if you remember what we, what we did on the invitation, we just wrote, uh, our goal is not a great church. Our goal is a great city. We wanted to plant a church with a city vision because we believe that the church exists. You see that there in your outline in the introduction? The church exists for the city, not the city for the church. That the church should be a blessing. It should give itself a way to contribute to the flourishing of the city and not just spiritually. And too often what's happened is that the church has become parasitic, trying to suck resources out of its host to increase its own life and vigor. We wanted to plant a church that had the spiritual, economic, social, civic, and so forth flourishing of Winter Haven as its goal, to be the kind of church that, uh, you, that if we were to close our doors, to be this kind of church, that if we were to, for whatever reason, have to close our doors, the city would weep because we'd become so important, so central, and so strategic to its life. So one of the things I noticed as we were playing Redeemer uh, when we, whenever I would, you know, I'm from here. I, I graduated Winter Haven High School. I'm probably getting old enough to where I shouldn't tell you what year that was because it becomes embarrassing at some point. Uh, but I graduated Winter Haven High School in the 90s. And uh, every now and then, back in those days, I would come across people that I went to high school with. And it was striking to me that the very first thing they did when I would, when I would meet them, and I hadn't seen them for years or whatever, is the very first part of the conversation is that they would always feel like they had to apologize or explain why they still lived here. Has anybody else experienced this? I mean, the very, very first thing, the very first thing. Well, you know, I, you know, I, I, I well, my, you know, they would come up with something. And so there's a general sense in that if you were really important, that you're really somebody, you would have moved on. If you're still here, if you're still here in this place after 10 years of high school, then what's wrong with you? You've settled. And so I'm on a personal mission to give people permission to love living here. I love living here. Lord willing, I, I will live here and minister here for the rest of my life. That's my goal anyway. We actually believe the gospel. See, this is what we're going to talk about, that the gospel compels us towards this kind of ownership and investment over a long period of time in one place. So, for example, the first chapter of the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, Nehemiah is confronted with the news that the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down and the city is in peril, and he begins to weep. And when they ask him, why are you so upset? Why are you weeping? He says, the city of my father's graves lies in ruins. He says, that's my city. I have a history there. I have people there. And so just so you know where I'm coming from, this is, this is Winter Haven. This is, this is Winter Haven for me. This is the city of my father's graves, literally. 
Generations of my people are, are buried here. My whole life has been spent here. And so that should make sense of why we want to talk about this. Now, I realize, let me just say this before we get into this. I, I realize not all of you live in Winter Haven. Not all of you love Winter Haven the way I do. This is my city. It may not be yours. So listen, dream of this for whatever place is your place. As we talk this morning, think about the fact we want to plant churches in everywhere in Polk County, in Bartow, in Haines City, in Davenport, all of these places. And the fastest way, listen please, the fastest way for the Holy Spirit to, to, to do that, the fastest way to that goal is for the Spirit to give you a vision of ministry towards your city like this and then gather a group of people around that vision. That's how we're going to get that done. So dream about it. Let's dream together this morning as we think about our city. But, and that's what you see here in Jeremiah chapter 29. There are two things really is all this morning, although the first one's really going to be longer than the second. We want to ask these two questions. What does it mean for us to be a church for the city? Because that's really what Jeremiah, Jeremiah is writing to these people about. What does it mean for us to be a church for the city? What's the vision that this, that this scripture gives us? But then secondly, where do we get the energy? Where do we get the energy and the focus and the stick to to do that? So where do, we, where do we get the power that we need? So there's vision, there's a promise of vision, or there's a, a picture of vision, and then there's a promise of power from this text. So let's look at both of those together, okay? First, what does it mean for us to be a church for the city? Well, we need a city vision. That's the title of the sermon. We need a city vision. Now come with me to Jeremiah 29, and let me give you some context here. Jeremiah 29 is written, you'll see there in verse 1, to the Israelites in exile. Judah has been captured. We're about to read this in our community Bible reading in 2 Chronicles. They've been captured, conquered in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. The political policy of the Babylonians was to exile the leaders and the ruling classes. So there in verses 1 and 2, you'll see that it's the elders, the priests, the nobles, the prophets. Verse 3 talks about all of the the cultural leaders, the artisans, the, the architects, the artists. All of these cultural elites were then exiled were exiled away from their homeland to the city of their conquering. And then after a certain amount of time, they would, they would then be allowed to return home. Now, why? Well, this is a political strategy, see. Uh, the Babylonians were hoping to get them out of their homeland, put them in their city, assimilate them into their culture, so that within a generation or two, they would lose their distinctive religious beliefs and cultural identity, and therefore... When they sent them back to their homeland, there would be no resisting the military and political aims of, of Babylon. It was a very, very common strategy. Now, the Israelites knew this. So what we're told here is that when they got to Babylon, they settled on the outskirts of the city at the Kabar Canal. They were trying to resist this cultural assimilation and live apart from the wicked pagan nation that they had been taken to against their will. So in chapter 8, 28... Jeremiah of Jeremiah, some of their prophets encouraged this strategy. Hananiah, for example, who the Bible very clearly calls a false prophet, he said, listen, it's only going to be two years. Two years, this is Jeremiah 28.3, two years, and God's going to come and bring you back. So don't settle down, don't get too comfortable. It's only a couple of years and we're going home, so let's just kind of hang out out here until the Lord comes and then we'll, we'll, you know, we'll head back home. But in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah, the true prophet of the Lord, prompted by the Lord, writes a letter here to the exiles in Babylon. And here's what he says. He says it's not going to be two years. Look there in verse 10. He says, rather, it's going to be 70 years. 70 years. And then God will bring you home. 70 years. So for us, that's about the time of the ending of World War II. So, you know, to today. If you just get a, get a picture of that. 
70 years and God will bring you home. But in the meantime, he gives them words for how they should act during their stay there. Okay? And, here, and here's why this is so important. It's important for us because the Bible, it says this is a letter written to exiles in Babylon. But here's what I want you to see about you and I. The Bible calls us exiles too. James 1.1. 1, 1. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul tells us that our true citizenship is in heaven. So we live, many of us, in Winter Haven or Lake Wales or Bartow, but those places are not our home. Our home is in heaven. In 70 years or so, and the Lord will come and take us home too. But for now, we live like these people did in the places that God has sent us as exiles. And so what does it mean for us to live faithfully there? What does it mean for us to have a vision for the city as strangers and exiles who live in it. Well, there are three things, and I've, I've uh, so I tricked you, right? Two, two points, but the first point has three points. Did you catch that? You guys following, you guys following my strategy there yet? There are three things. And the first, the first thing Jeremiah tells them to do is he says, first, I want you to live intentionally. I want you to live, work, and play intentionally in the city that, I've, that God has sent you to. Live, work, and play there intentionally. Don't separate or withdraw. That's the first thing. Now, remember, the Israelite community has refused to engage in the city of their exile. They've ghettoized on the outskirts of the city. Shockingly, Jeremiah says, this is wrong. You're wrong to do that. Look what he says, verse 5. He says, don't do that. Instead, verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and give your daughters in marriage. In other words, he's saying, move in, settle down, make a home in this place God has sent you. Let me, let me put it this way. I'm going to use a lot of images, I think, this morning. But he says, don't live, don't live in the city like a tourist. Don't live there like a tourist. Now, a few things here. First, the Lord is very clear that he has sent them to Babylon. Look at verse 4. He, he addresses, Jeremiah addresses the letter to all those Exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. More explicitly, even in verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, the Lord says. And so they were there by divine purpose and divine appointment. Now, this is very important for us. Wherever you are, wherever you are, you are not there by accident. I'm finding myself less and less at home in my culture these days. Anybody with me? Less and less at home in the things that are going on around me. I can imagine... The Israelites feel out of place in Babylon as well, that pagan, awful place. But the very first thing that God is saying to them and to us is, you're, you're not out of place. You're right where you're supposed to be. You're right where I want you to be. I've sent you here. So one of the, one of the things, one of the foundational things is we have to stop acting and speaking as if the world is spinning out of control. The culture we live in is feeling less and less like home. That's not the problem. The problem is that we were foolish enough to ever think of it as a home to begin with. This world is not our home, but we are right where God wants us. That's the doctrine of sentness. So wherever you are, God sent you there. If you live in Winter Haven, God has sent you there. If you live somewhere else, he sent you there. He may move you sometime in the future, but while you're here, as long as you're here, until he moves you, he wants you to dream about being here, not to dream of some other place. He doesn't want you to wait to start living until you get to that other place. Wherever you are, whatever job you have, whatever neighborhood you live in, all of these things, dream of being there. Because to always be looking for greener, 
grass is what the Bible calls discontent. It's a sin. There's an old book written by Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs that is probably, I hesitate to say this, but probably top five books of my entire life that has most changed my life, and it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in the book, Jeremiah Burroughs, he says that the cause of such uh, anxiety and discontentment in people is that they're always looking for a change of circumstances because they don't necessarily like where they are. And so he says the, 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 um, the way to find peace, contentment, joy, purpose, meaning, all of those kinds of things is hardly ever that you need a change of circumstance. The real way to find those things, to find peace and joy and contentment and, and meaning and purpose is, is to do the work of your circumstances. That's his words. He says, do the work of your circumstances and those things will come. So here, I'm paraphrasing, but here's what he says. He says, the carnal heart thinks I'll never be happy unless, right, a new job, a new spouse, more money, a different view, whatever the case might be. But a gracious heart says, what is the duty of the circumstances God has put me into? Listen, this is, this is good. He says, let me exert all my strength to perform the duties of my present circumstances. Men think if I were in such and such a circumstance, then I would be happy, and then perhaps they get into those circumstances and they're as far from happy as they were before. No, no. Let me consider what is the duty of my present circumstances and content my heart with this and say, oh, and say, I am serving the counsels of God in those circumstances where I am. It is the counsel of God that has brought me into these circumstances I'm in. And I desire to serve the counsel of God in these circumstances. See, it would be easy. It would have been easy for the exiles to have shut down emotionally because of their pain and loss. But God says, no, no, don't do that. I've sent you there. I've got plans for you there, right there where you are right now. I'm going to bring you home one day. But don't think about that. Think about why I've put you in the place that I've put you. And he wants them to do the work of their circumstances, to dream about how to honor and serve with the 70 years that he's going to give them there in this pagan nation. And then he gets more specific. He says, plant gardens. You see that? Buy houses. In other words, don't just be there. Invest. Invest in the long term. Invest. Buy a house. It's you know, not a good financial decision, right, to buy a house if you're going to move in two years. But if you're not going to move for 70, buy a house. Invest your life wherever you are. Wherever you are, God may move you someday. But wherever you are, until he does, put down roots. In Wendell Berry's novel, Jaber Crow, which is a favorite among pastors for some reason, uh, the title character Jaber finally makes his way back to the small town he grew up in um, to become the town barber. And maybe that's why pastors like it so much is because barbering and pastoring are similar vocations. I don't know. And for the next 35 years, for the next 35 years, he lives there in this, this city. And for the first of those 35 years, he's quite restless. He's always thinking about, you know, I'm a young man. I can't, I can't find a wife. And he's thinking about moving to a bigger city with better prospects. But eventually something begins to change in his heart. And he decides to invest. And here's what, he, here's what he says. These words have just always kind of captured me. He says, what decided me, I think, was that I could no longer imagine a life for myself beyond Fort William. That's the name of the city. I thought I will have to share in the fate of this place. Whatever happens to Fort William must happen to me. He just, he invested his life. He said, I'm going to be here. Whatever happens to this place is what happens to me. It really struck me because it's how I feel about this city. And it's how I feel about you. I can't imagine a life beyond this city, this place, this job, this church. So I have no choice but to invest. 
And so as the world around us becomes more and more secular, more and more opposed and hostile to our faith as Christians, you know, don't you, that the temptation for us will be to want to withdraw, to ghettoize, to create little Christian bubbles that keep the world out there. And I would, I'd be honest enough with you this morning to say this is a temptation for me. I am, I am much more flight than fight. Can I get an amen? Anybody else? Much more flight than fight. We homeschooled our kids for years. We've had them in private Christian schools. There's a potential danger in these strategies. And the danger is that we would be far too removed, too insulated from the needs of the city. Uh, and it really, we're being stretched and challenged there, aren't we? Move in. Buy houses. Plant fields. The applications here are where you physically live. Where you physically live. Where, 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 what do you do for school? What are, what are, where are your kids involved in things? And how is your family really kind of moving in and, and becoming part of the rhythms and the, the institutions and the structures of the city that you live in? Because it's what God's called us to do. So intentionally live, work, and play in the city. Don't separate or withdraw. But secondly, secondly, the second thing Jeremiah says is, but also, and here you see a balance. He says, Intentionally move in, don't separate or withdraw, but respectfully resist. Don't assimilate or give in to dominant cultural values. This is the second thing here. So Jeremiah's instructions continue. Verse 6, take wives and have sons. You see this? Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there, but do not decrease. And the commentator said that that last part there is a specific meaning. God is saying, live in the city, don't withdraw, but don't let it consume you. Don't live there as a tourist, but don't become a native either. We might put it that way. Don't live as a tourist, but don't become a native either. So there's a balance, God says. Make a home in Babylon, but remember it's not your true home. Adopt those people, but remember they're not really your people. Seventy years, and I'm going to come and get you and take you back to your real home. So don't go there and just become like everybody else. Don't adopt their way of life and bring it back with you when you come home. That's what they're trying. That's what they want. That's the pressure they're trying to exert upon you. Don't let that happen to you. So we have a we have a couple of little, there's there's a number actually there's a number of um of images and metaphors in the Bible that help us understand what it looks like to live like this in the world. You know, so let me just kind of go through a few of those for a few minutes. You have this image of ambassador in the scriptures. We are ambassadors for Christ. And, of course, a, a U.S. ambassador is an American citizen who lives in a foreign country representing the political interests of this country, of America. That's a hard job, isn't it? Have you ever thought about that? How hard would it be to have to be bilingual? You have to speak the language of the country where you've been sent to serve, but you have to be completely fluent in language and culture in that place, and yet you're there to represent the values and interests of a different country. So an ambassador runs in the political circles of the country he serves in, but always as an outsider. So there's this kind of dual citizenship that he's trying to, trying to maintain. And that faithfulness really requires that he have a dual citizenship, so to speak. And here's where I think the text in Matthew 5 is really helpful to us, if you look there for just a minute, where Jesus gives us a couple of more metaphors. He says that we are like salt and light. And salt, I've got to be really quick here to move through this, but salt flavors and preserves. Salt is a preservative. So the, world, the world's always blowing things up, isn't it? Things are just spinning out of control. Christians are there to preserve the world, actually, to, to, um, to disarm hostility through forgiveness and to, to not always be getting upset and, and shooting off and ranting on social media and contributing to kind of this atomic bomb that seems to be 
you know, percolating in our society. We're to be salt that allows for there to be, we're to be actually the thing that allows for civil discourse and for there to be kind of an insulation of peace and, and, um, and forgiveness and all these kinds of things to make uh, the, the conversations that we need to be having in our culture possible. But we're light. We're light there too. Salt and light, and light in the Bible refers to truth. And so we're people that have been put in strategic places to speak the truth in love because we live from a different story and from a different truth. And so we're to be a counterculture within the culture. We're to be a city within every city that shines out in the darkness. Alien and strangers. Of course, aliens. We're called aliens. I mean, what does that word even mean? If you're an alien, what's, what's true of you? Alien? You're weird. I mean, if you were walking down the street and you met an alien, how would you know they're an alien? In the cartoons, they have little... You know, pokey things coming out of the top of their heads. Right? Somebody who looks, okay, you're not from around here, are you? That's an alien. Strangers, we're called to be strangers. What word is inside that word stranger? What's, who, what's a stranger? Someone who's strange. You see this? This is, what, this is what salt and light means, and this is what the scripture calls us, that we are a you know, this is the nice. This is the southern nice way. In in, in uh, Second Peter, it's you're a peculiar people, <laughs> right? Bless bless their hearts. They're real peculiar. That's that's just a nice way of saying you're you're weird. You're strange. A city on a hill. That's what that metaphor means. Now, of course, um, on the one hand, the danger is to withdraw. That's the danger in the first part. But the danger here is accommodation or enculturation. The danger here is that we would lose this distinctive identity and story and we would no longer look to the world as any different from the world itself. I heard one author say it this way, that the church, the church is not meant to, Christians are not meant to be a mirror that reflects back to the culture they live in, its own values and priorities. Christians should be a window. A window that, that gives somebody a view into a whole other way of living. We're a window, not a mirror. We're a window, not a mirror. Now, let me give you an example of what accommodation or enculturation might look like. This language, and here, I'm going to get in trouble, so please don't be mad at me. I don't like when people are mad at me, but I I feel like this is a good application for today. This language of a city on a hill was co-opted by Ronald Reagan and other political uh, conservative politicians, you know, and, and, uh, I guess, liberals as well, to describe the sense of America's destiny in the plan of God on the world stage, and this really was a mistake. It's created a lot of confusion. America is not the light of the world, the city on the hill, shining out in an otherwise dark world. The church of Jesus Christ is a city on a hill that shines out within all the nations of the world, including America. Okay? We have to be really careful there. Uh, this, and this is what makes celebrating the 4th of July, this is when we would typically do this, so tricky. So all over the city, probably, there are churches that are doing patriotic things, uh, and, and so forth, and we don't, obviously, and that may be uh, confusing and strange, so I thought I probably should explain that a little bit. Um, we don't fly American flags in our sanctuary because while we love our country, please hear me, and while we're grateful to God for the way he has blessed us and the freedoms that we enjoy that are really unparalleled in the, in the history of the world, and we are grateful for the men and the women who have fought and died to protect those freedoms, while all of those things are true, still, our ultimate allegiance as people of faith is to another country and to another kingdom. 
Our true citizenship is in heaven. And that means that when it comes down to it, we pledge ultimate allegiance to something other than the American flag and the story and the values that it stands for. It's not a popular thing to say. Please don't be mad at me. Come and talk to me about that. But the reason it feels so yucky, why, is it feel, why am I so hesitant and why does it feel so yucky to say something like that? And the reason it feels so yucky and the reason I've got to say this this morning is because the American church has become too assimilated into American culture. Many Americans and opportunistic politicians adopt language that seems to describe America's history as the continuation of the biblical story up through modern times. Our language often weds piety with patriotism when in truth, true piety always involves a hint of critique and resistance. At least according to Jeremiah 29. Our churches are far too ready to celebrate America. That's a dangerous thing because it can mean, it can mean that our faith has been eroded. It's subtle, but we have to be really careful. See the problem? The problem everybody in Christian circles seems to be trying to solve is how can Christianity be more relevant to the world that we live in now? Can I just say that's not the problem? The gospel is not relevant because it satisfies our cultural appetites. It is relevant in its difference. It's relevant in its subversion. And it's when Christians stand out in stark contrast from the darkness around them that they shine most brilliantly. So we have to fight hard to keep this balance. What the scripture says to us is, it says live, live among the pagans, live among, live among pagans, live among people who don't share your faith. Befriend them, uh, have relationships with them. Let your light shine before, before men in the presence. I mean, live publicly in front of people, but as a peculiar people in a holy nation full of beautiful works that glorify God. So intentionally live, work, and play in the city. Don't separate or withdraw, but respectfully resist. Don't be assimilated. Don't give in to cultural, dominant cultural values. And to the extent that we're faithful, what will happen here is we will experience both praise and enthusiasm and misunderstanding and caution. Praise and enthusiasm and misunderstanding and caution. I meet so many people just going around town in Winter Haven. Friends or acquaintances from my years growing up here, my parents' friends who knew me as a child, and all the time, they, they love to say, you know, we hear such good things about your church. Or they say, you're doing such a great job. Your mom, they love to say, your mom would be so proud. I've never once, not once, seen somebody that, that and had them look at me and say, yeah, you're the pastor of that church that's causing so much trouble. Now, they may feel that way, but they don't say it to me. At least not, you know, not, not in person. I hear, that, I hear it through back channel sometimes. But I think that we ought to hear that a little bit more. What do you think? You're that church that's really causing trouble. Remember what they said of them in Acts. Everywhere they go, they're turning the world upside down. And so we're to live intentionally and work and play in the city to refuse the temptation to separate and withdraw, but to respectfully resist in the city and to not assimilate or give in to the dominant cultural values. But there's a third thing, and I'm coming to a close here. We're thirdly to sacrificially love the city, to not be selfish or defensive or contemptuous. You see here in verse 7, Jeremiah says, Seek the welfare of the, the city where I have sent you, the Lord's writing to the people. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. In its welfare, you will find your welfare. In other words, even though you're Ultimate citizenship is in heaven and the city of God, yet we should seek to become the very best citizens of the city of man. Don't attack, despise, or flee. 
but seek the welfare of the city and love it sacrificially. The word welfare there is shalom, and it means thriving and flourishing. It's this important biblical word. So to seek the shalom of Winter Haven in Polk County means that we should want it to be economically successful and the people that live here to be emotionally and psychologically healthy and joyful and hopeful and for everyone to have all that they need to flourish. So we're, we're aiming for spiritual and economic and civic and what? Anything you can think of. Success and flourishing. Now we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks. But this is why when we sent a postcard announcing our first worship service, we said that our goal was not a great church. It was to have a great city. It's why when we pray in our services, like Jonathan did just a minute ago, we don't pray just for our church, and we typically don't even just pray for other churches or the churches. We pray for civic leaders, for the different departments in our local government, for our law enforcement officers. And it's also why we strongly believe that the goal of ministry is not to get you to come here for what happens here, but to get you out there, because God means for the church to be a community of people radically committed to the good of their city as a whole, who use their talents, their connections, their resources, and their wealth sacrificially, not just to see the church itself flourish, but for the good of the whole city, and particularly for the broken parts of the city where there's a need for justice. So Tim Keller, he writes, Christians should seek to live in the city, not to use the city to build great churches, but to use the resources of the church to see great flourishing cities. Listen to this. This is great. He says, we refer to this as a city growth model of ministry rather than a church growth model. We want to have a city growth model. So Derek Viecher and the city commission, 610, and all the guys working to develop and grow the downtown area, the, the people running for political office that are in our church, the principals and administrators and teachers at Elbert and other schools, all of these people should see and experience the church as a partner with them in their initiatives and goals for the city, not just enthusiastic about what we're doing, but for us to be enthusiastic about what they're doing. That's the kind of church we want to be. So lastly, and just as we come to the table this morning, where do we then get the stuff to do this, to, res- to live intentionally and work and play in the city, to res- respectfully resist and to sacrificially love there? Where do we get the power and the stuff to do this? I spent all of my time talking about the other, so let me be brief. And let me just direct your attention to verse 11. This is the most famous verse in the, in the passage. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So where do we find the stuff that we need to sacrificially seek the welfare of our city? Well, it's found in knowing that God is absolutely committed to your welfare, to our welfare. He has plans for your welfare. Do you see that? Jeremiah says, whatever's happening in your life right now, no matter how painful it might feel, God is executing a plan and the end will be good, not evil. Should I say that again? Whatever's happening right now, no matter how painful it might feel at the moment, God is executing a plan, and the end of that plan will be good, not evil. There is a future and a hope. And it may be a windy road you're on, but he's taking you there. That's a sure thing. That's a sure thing. So you can invest and give your heart to the place God has sent you and endure through all the hard things that come your way because he will never leave you or forsake you. The darkest hours of your life are just a passing shadow. Even in death, you will have a future and a hope if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So exile would not be the end of the story for Israel. Verse 14, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and I will bring you back. And it's a promise not just for those people, but it's a promise for every exile and sojourner and stranger in the room this morning. 
you might say, how can I be sure? And that's why we have this meal together this morning. How can we be sure? Well, the answer is that what God has done for us in the gospel is the assurance that we need that he will be faithful and true to every promise that he's made. So let's just rehearse this together. Think about the incarnation with me for a moment. In the incarnation, God saw our misery and spiritual need, and he didn't withdraw from us. The opposite, he came down, he moved in. In Jesus Christ, he set aside his glory and plunged himself into the messiness of our redemption. So let's move in, let's get messy. Think about the cross. On the cross, Jesus suffered for our flourishing. It was as if the Father said the only way that they can prosper is if you die. But if you, if you die, they prosper. If you prosper, they die. And he died. And the only way our city will prosper is if we die too. And then, of course, think of the resurrection. In the resurrection, Jesus has inaugurated the future and the hope that Jeremiah here in verse 11 promises. In his death and resurrection, he has become the cornerstone of a heavenly city. Our true home, a city that has foundations. In other words, it's a sure thing. Whose designer and builder is God. So we have a city. We have a home. So we don't have to use all of our money and resources and connections to try to make a home for ourselves here. We can give it all away and live as exiles and strangers. Living intentionally, resisting respectfully, loving sacrificially as we wander the wilderness of this world. With the hope that is ours that one day he will come and take us home. Let's pray. So, Father, as we come to the table this morning, we thank you. The scripture talks about you providing for us a banquet in the wilderness. And so this is our banquet table in the wilderness that you have called us to wander through. And so we give you thanks uh, for how richly you provide for us, where we are, where we are prone to doubt that, to wonder or to worry about how, how, how much you uh, love us or how well you might provide for us. May the abundance of this meal that is set before us this morning silence every doubt, every accusation of our heart against you. Lord Jesus, may you massage into our hearts this morning the faith that we need to live. Uh, And it's hard. It's hard what you called your people to here and what you call us to. But give us the faith and the courage and the stuff that we need to live that way so that you might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, those are good, that's a good song to end on, uh, on a morning like this morning, uh, that we have been called to take all that God has given to us in Christ. Uh, we, are the, we are the mediators of that to the world. And so uh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I thought about this, you know, what you get to see uh, over the next few weeks, I think, is we talk about these things, it's kind of the, the, we're having like a family meeting. You know what I mean? This is like the church having a family meeting to say, guys, this is really what we're about. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, you wonder... Uh, I hope part of what you can hear as we talk about these things is that we're repenting of where we've been unfaithful to what the Bible's called us to, where we've represented a gospel, as we sang a little while ago, that is not a gospel, uh, where, where we have really failed uh, to follow the commands of the Lord Jesus and where we're trying to repent so that, so that uh, the gospel that means so much to us, that we can convey its beauty to you as well. That's our hope. And so it's the, God sends you. He sends you to live sacrificially, uh, to resist respectfully. Uh, to live intentionally and to, and to give generously and sacrificially to the city that he's called you to. The promise is that you do not go alone, but that it's his generosity that sends you in generosity. It's his intentionality towards you that makes you intentional. Right? Amen? And that's the words of this benediction. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.